Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sons of Sequoia podcast. Hello, David. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing fine. Nice. So this to- subject today is going to be very, very interesting, I think. Yes. Today we're talking about an article in the most recent Foreign Affairs about tribalism. And I would like to say before we start, and I said this last week when we talked about Foreign Affairs, I am a subscriber. I didn't just steal this from the internet. So I feel like the point of having a subscription, the Council on Foreign Relations, who publishes Foreign Affairs, they want to engender discussion. So even though we take an article and sort of basically put it on the internet, it's fair use, I think, in terms of copyright law, because we're doing exactly what they want. Don't you think? Yes. And by reading it, hopefully we can show people the content of foreign affairs is is valuable, it's pertinent, it's relative. And uh, we want people to know what, what foreign affairs, the content of this particular journal, uh, what they have mm-hmm. so that other people can, can benefit from it. And uh, hopefully people will subscribe. Yes. So... The article in question we'll be looking at is from the most recent issue, and it's called The Fractured Power, How to Overcome Tribalism, by Reuben E. Brigady. Who is Reuben E. Brigady? Well, let's just go ahead and look that up. Um, I... Ruben Brigady, American diplomat and academic, currently vice chancellor of the University of the South in Tennessee. Previously served as dean of the Elliott School of International Affairs at George Washington University. He was the United States ambassador to the African Union. And he was on the United Nations Economics Commission for Africa. So I'm going to give you the 100-mile high view of this real quick and then we'll get into it um this guy has had a lot of diplomatic posts obviously with the african union as economic commission for the un in africa and he saw in africa a lot of times you could see a reckoning coming because there was tribalism in africa and he said, you know, you could apply that same framework to the United States and see that tribalism is causing an issue here. And that's bad. Tribalism never leads to positive outcomes. But there's a playbook that the international community has to deal with issues like tribalism. And should we look up the definition of tribalism? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. Okay, the state or fact of being organized in a tribe or tribes... The behavior and attitudes that stem from strong loyalty to one's own tribe or social group. Um, and in and he'll get into it in the article. But a lot of the problem lies in your decisions don't lie or your opinions don't lie on a solid reasoning of the facts and how they relate to you. Your opinions rely on whether or not the tribe that you're in supports those opinions. That sort of becomes tribalism. I get, uh, click that first one. People also ask, what is an example of tribalism? The state of living in a tribe is tribalism. So this is more tribalism as in 
tribes, you know, not in yeah, politics. Modern tribalism. Did, right. This word is also used to describe situations where people are overly loyal to their own group. Uh, I think that's the key. They're overly loyal to their own group. Uh, so that they, they kind of like, oh, are you part of my group? Well, then I agree with you. If you're not part of my group, I disagree with you. I says, well, wait a minute, I'm right. Says, well, you're not part of my group, so I'm disagreeing with you. So there's an example. Yeah. Am I correct? Am I right? Yeah. So it's like if if Black Lives, if you ask a Trump supporter, if Black Lives Matter, storm the Capitol and rub poop on the walls, would that be wrong? They'd say, of course, lock them all up. It's like, what if it was Trump supporters? And it's like, well, they probably had a good reason. That's right. That's sort of tribalism, and that's what this person's getting at. Uh, the actions, they're not even condemned, even when they're condemnable because of tribalism. So should we get into yep. the article? Yeah. Yes. Okay. I'll do a little reading. I'll do a little reading. The Fractured Power, How to Overcome Tribalism by Ruben E. Brigitte. When the I United might point out before you get started here, notice what this article is. It's not just saying this is what it is. He goes in to say, well, this is what it is. And here's how you overcome it. So it's not just about saying, it's not just about saying, this is bad, this is bad. It's not just complaining. It's actually offering a path to a better, uh, better society uh, ho at home and abroad. Mm -hmm. So I want to point that out, that this, that again, uh, when, when you come to foreign affairs or other journals, uh, when you come to academic uh, journals, uh, a lot of times they will offer solutions. Uh, when you go to other types of uh, writings, they really don't offer solutions. Their solution really is trying to support their tribalism. Yes. So I think a good example is this Dr. Seuss stuff. Fox News was very upset about the Dr. Seuss stuff. The Dr. Seuss Foundation had determined that it was no longer in their best interest to publish some of the text, not the most popular text, not Green Eggs and Ham, not Horton Hears a Who, but to think it happened on Mulberry Street. They didn't want to publish that anymore because there were some negative depictions of um, racial stereotypes. And Fox News is saying, they canceled Dr. Seuss. And by implication, they're saying, we're the conservative media, but we feel like the government should be allowed to go in and tell a private company what they can and can't publish. <laughs> and that the free market shouldn't decide whether or not you publish something. I think that Dr. Seuss books, they shouldn't publish Green Eggs and Ham. They should only publish the racist ones. And if they made that argument with a straight face, you'd say that seems a little disingenuous. And that's because it is. It is disingenuous. They're outraged. But if you carry that to a logical conclusion, they're outraged that Dr. Seuss's racist books will no longer be published. The logical conclusion is, well, the government should step in, supersede the free market, and force the Dr. Seuss Foundation to publish the racist ones, right? And that's not in line with your initial ideology. So, uh, but the well, I think, thing, I think, but, I but think the key, go ahead. To your point, they never make the, this is what we should do. They say, Dr. Seuss is not publishing these books, and you should be outraged about that. They don't say, and as a result of that, Dr. Seuss Foundation should be forced to publish the racist books. They don't say that, but isn't that sort of what they're implying? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, but the point there is, 
is that uh, I think you said it. I want to emphasize what you said is that uh, the point is that there's a private company. And uh, so they they're saying the government should go in and tell the private company what they should be doing. Mm -hmm. You know, like, oh, I think you should be saying this. I think you should be saying this. and You should be saying this, telling other people what to put in their books. Mm hmm. And, and actually, the government is not doing it. The government is not is not uh, uh, not publishing the books. It's, the government's not part of that. Dr. Seuss, the, the publishers, did that themselves to their own books. Yeah, they say I don't want to. I don't want to say that. I don't want to publish that. You have to publish that. <laughs> yeah, you should be angry that Dr. Seuss isn't publishing the racist books anymore. And and then, but like to their point, to your point, that's where the argument stops. Right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, are you angry? Well, let, get this. Dr. Seuss wrote some books that had some racist stuff in them, and the foundation decided not to publish. You should be angry about that. That's their argument. But the thing is, this isn't just saying there's tribalism, and I'm going to demonstrate how there's tribalism, this article that we're about to read. It's saying there's tribalism. There's a framework for identifying tribalism, and there's a framework for dealing it. And we're going to discuss... How when that framework is used in international affairs, it's often used in countries like Burundi or Rwanda, where you have Hutus and Tutsis and their literal tribes. But what if you turn that framework on the United States? What sort of solutions could you see from using tools that have been established? Right. So, so he is not going to use tribalism to describe tribalism. Yes. <laughs> Essentially, it's what he's going to do. Because uh, uh, because he's approaching it correctly and logically and uh, and legitimately and ethically. So, should we start reading? Yeah. When the United States looks abroad to assess the risk of conflict, it relies on a host of tools to understand other countries' social and political divisions and how likely they are to result in unrest or violence. These techniques reflect decades of research in both government and academia into the root causes of civil disorder and state failure. The idea is that by better understanding those causes, policymakers can prevent conflict before it breaks out or, failing that, help states recover quickly once it does. One such tool is the U.S. Agency for International Development's Conflict Assessment Framework which is designed to illuminate the underlying dynamics of countries in various stages of civil strife. Analysts use the CAF to understand local grievances and divisions in, in a particular country, the resilience of the country's political system, and events that could trigger violence. The process can require dozens of personnel and take months to complete. Diplomats and development experts scrutinize confidential cables and secure facilities in Washington and conduct public surveys in conflict-prone countries. They interview local stakeholders on the ground and consult experts in capitals around the world. They make every effort to understand fractured societies in granular detail, both to predict potential conflicts and to propose interventions to stop them. For most of recent history, Americans have deployed such frameworks elsewhere, reserving concerns about its stability or conflict for countries other than their own. When applied to the United States in 2021, however, the U.S. government's own tools paint a damning picture of American politics. The contentious 2020 presidential campaign laid bare deep divisions in American society, exhibiting precisely the kind of tribal politics when strict loyalty to a foundational identity, such as race, 
religion, clan, or region is the organizing principle of political life within a country. That sets off alarm bells when seen abroad. The campaign looked less like a contest of ideas and more like a battle between tribes, with voters racing to their partisan corners based on identity, not concerns about policy. These divisions, moreover, are coupled with a growing belief that U.S. political and social institutions are no longer functioning as intended. According to a 2019 report by the Pew Research Center, over 60% of Americans believe that declining levels of trust, both interpersonal and in government, are making it difficult to solve the country's problems. Tools such as the CAF, Conflict Assessment Framework, also note the importance of the longer-term context to understanding the likelihood of violence. And the context in the United States is troubling. The FBI has reported that in 2019, the United States saw more racially and religiously motivated hate crimes, including 51 murders, than it had at any point in the previous two decades. Sales of firearms reached new highs in 2020, with African Americans, worried about becoming the targets of racial violence, purchasing guns in record numbers. The killing of George Floyd in May 2020 and the summer of reckoning that followed brought racial tensions in the United States to their highest levels in a generation. Hardened ethnic and ideological identities affixed to political parties, political leaders exacerbating sectarian divisions, public institutions that are distrusted by more and more citizens for their failure to deliver policy solutions, the capital stormed by rioters for the first time in over 200 years, a heavily armed society in which a defeated head of government claims that the election was illegitimate, yet continues to enjoy the loyalty of nearly half the electorate, if American diplomats and aid specialists found this fact pattern elsewhere, they would call for diplomatic intervention. But just as experiences from elsewhere offer a reason to worry about American tribalism, they also provide valuable instructions for how to overcome it. If they learn the right lessons from their counterparts abroad, U.S. citizens, civic groups, and leaders can bridge the country's tribal division and begin to revive American democracy. That's the first section. Shall we have a discussion about that? Very, very, very interesting. Uh, yeah. This, uh, I think it's fascinating. It comes as no surprise, though, right? Well, you kind of, you kind of know that. You know, you see that, and if you think about it, if you, if you think about it apart from tribalism, you're like, oh my goodness, look at this. This is terrible. Um, this isn't right. This isn't right. But what he did, he he pretty much explains it extremely well. Yeah, mm -hmm. this is what's happening. And so I think I think he explained it very well. Like, okay. When you look at what's actually happening, here's what is happening. Yes. From a from a from an objective perspective, not from an inside subjective perspective of uh, uh, sectarianism or tribalism, but from an objective perspective, yes. which which is good. I mean, and I think that it's it's owing to his experience. You know, as U.S. envoy to the African Union, there are countries that are heavily tribal in Africa, and you look at it and you say. You know, this tribe can never rule effectively because half the population will hate them because they're the wrong tribe. And uh, and that was not necessarily the case in America, but it's becoming the case. So, do, I mean, do we have any additional... This is sort of setting the framework of tribalism exists in America. The fact pattern is troubling if we saw it in a different country and we would want to intervene diplomatically, but we're seeing it in our own country. 
So since we're seeing it, let's use the tools that we would use if we intervene diplomatically at home. That's basically what he's saying in the beginning, right? That's right. So right. Shall, should we just continue well, or should, do you have anything else to add? Yeah, actually, it's what he, uh, he says. He says, look, uh, I think also the implication, which he'll probably, he'll probably get into the, last, the next section, is that, look, when you actually look at what happens using these tools, uh, this is a problem. And it's not a problem because it happened. It's a problem because of the, the causes that made it happen. And and I think that's that's one thing that a lot of people say. Oh well, yeah, that because it's their fault. Wait a minute, he's backing up and saying, here are the causes to make that happen, and here's what you do to prevent that from going on. Mm-hmm. And and I want to point out that I don't know about you, David, but I don't see that approach at all in in our news media. No. And, and and as a matter of fact, they try to fuel the fire. Yes, because if you're enraged, you're engaged. And they will start looking. That's right. If you're enraged, you'll be engaged in those news articles. Why? Because they are not offering solutions. They're just trying to uh, get viewers. Yeah, you should be mad, and here's why. That's basically... That's their... On, on either side, on both mm-hmm. sides. Mm-hmm. Both sides. Like uh, Trump gave an interview on Fox News, and he said that, you know, he came up with the idea for the vaccine. Mm -hmm. And they just sort of accepted that as fact. And you know for a fact that any liberal that hears that or Democrat will say, the hell is this guy talking about? But, (laughs) But one side says, yeah, if it weren't for Trump, we wouldn't have the vaccine. And Biden should go out on the news. And they're actually saying this on Fox News. He should go out on the news every day, hold a news conference, and thank Trump every day. And it's like, he's not going to do that, you know? Uh, uh, but I, that's, see, look, we start talking about specifics of the news, and I'm already enraged. <laughs> well, the thing about the southern borders, too. Mm-hmm. That's another issue where I think a politician came out. I don't remember their names. The politician came out and said, oh, this is a Biden... This this is all Biden's fault. It, it's a it's a Biden. Uh, uh, it, it's a Biden problem. Yeah. Biden did it. Biden but, did it. Biden did it. Biden. But I mean, I don't think Donald Trump had a lab coat and a degree in immunology. <laughs> he wasn't in there developing the vaccine, so it's not. Yeah. It wasn't his idea. Okay, but anyway. you start talking about that stuff, you get enraged, and that's tribalism, right? Well, that's what I think, unfortunately, that's what the media, some of the media, that's why, uh, and so, you, so, okay, let's get to try this in a minute, but uh, let me just say something about journalism. Uh, that's why journalism can be misused very easily. Uh, and so what's the, what's the answer to me? Uh, that's why we need good journalism. We need people to say, here are the sides of the issue and or whatever, and say, here's what's happening. And here are the facts of what happened. And these are the sides of the issue. And you don't pick and choose, you know. Uh, you say, let everyone know. Uh, uh, even when you look at, when you start analyzing uh, the different types of uh, news media, and you look uh, at all different kinds, all different types, uh, look at an issue 
all the different reports, and you'll see they'll pick and choose what the actual report. It'll be it'll be a right right wing perspective or a left wing perspective. So they're not really given opinions. They don't have to. They can only report things that support one side or the other. Mm-hmm. I think journalism they need to re- report the story, and both sides. Mm-hmm. And uh, and some have tried to do that, and uh, so there's oh that's great that's great, and then it's not against it's against their tribe, and they go oh, that's bad that's bad. So I think uh, th- this is, it's a case for. Uh, we're getting off of off of the politics into the I mean off of the uh, foreign affairs into uh, journalism and politics. But I think we need. It's not that we don't have we should not have journalism. We should have good journalism. Well, I think it's easy to say we should have good journalism, but I think that the journalism exists in a market where the market is dominated by tribalism. So by having a reasoned argument, by sort of covering. And not even both sides in it. By I mean, I think one of the most fair papers that I've read throughout this last five, ten years is The Onion. <laughs> because they'll take the piss out of anyone. And whenever they go after the left wing, the left wing people are upset. And whenever they go after the right wing, the left wing people are gleeful. And vice versa. But it's like... No, everyone is fair game because they're not playing into tribalism. They're just trying to make a joke, you know? So you see their takes on things and you're like, that's funny. And part of the reason you think it's funny is because people are going to be upset about this. I remember, do you remember when New York Times published that editorial by Anonymous? Mm -hmm. And it's like, I work, I'm a high level Trump administration official. And I want to let you know there are adults in the room and we're working to keep them in control. Well, The Onion had an article, New York Times names Anonymous, new editor-in-chief. I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> well, I, which is a very good point, very good point. Uh, you know, you can laugh at The Onion because they're, they're, they tongue-in-cheek uh, attack everybody. But I think, I think your point, to, for me, is well taken. That's some of the best journalism out there. They'll make fun because... If you laugh and you make fun of something, there's an element of truth in it. Mm-hmm. And you know and what, when and, when they take the piss out of the liberals, the conservatives, they take glee and it's like schadenfreude. Like, oh, you know, the liberals are hurting over this one. But then when they take the, the piss out of the conservatives, the conservatives are like, I'm never going to read The Onion again. But the liberals are like, oh, I bet the conservatives are hurting over this one. It's fascinating to sort of sit on that fence and just say... We're not going to play into this tribalism. Like everything we do is going to be a cheap shot, but it's not going to be one-sided. Because <laughs> I mean, if you look at Colbert or uh, Seth Meyers, the late-night guys, it's all you know. Trump is bad. It's very one-sided. It is. I I've even mentioned that before. I I stopped watching the late night. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't like them. I don't like them because it's one thing. Humor should be funny but revealing. It shouldn't be funny because it it attacks and hurts people, you know. And even if they deserve it, uh, I still don't like it. Uh, Trump is still our president, and whether you like him or you don't like him, uh, you should recognize that and respect that. Uh, and I don't I don't respect the man uh, for the things that he's done, 
but I do respect the office, mm-hmm. uh, and I think he deserves respect because he's in that. He was in that office. Uh, I just, I think there's a fine line there. There's a well, fine line there. But I, the thing is, I'm sure there's smart people in this world, and the point of a late night show is not to bolster some sort of liberal agenda. The point of a late night show is to sell advertisements. That's the point of every show on television. And I'm sure NBC, CBS, they take a look at the ratings and they say, well, what's playing good right now is when Seth Meyers does a 15-minute closer look where he rips on Donald Trump. And we could do something wacky or zany like Karnak, but that's old-fashioned. People will turn tune away to a different channel. People won't watch the YouTube clips. You know, so we have to do this because the market is driving this behavior. And why is the market driving this behavior? Because tribalism is real. And and so people don't want to watch a Karnak or a a Triumph the Insult comic dog. You know, like Conan's classic sketches, Triumph the Insult comic dog, uh, the masturbating bear. Do you remember all those? Mm -hmm. Like, you don't see stuff like that. You just see the guy talking about how he's upset about the latest thing that was said by Trump. Like, I invented the vaccine or whatever. I came up with the idea of, like, that infuriates you, and then you go out and you do a monologue on it, and people watch it because they're infuriated too. Well, well, let me just be clear. Uh, it's fine to make fun of someone, but I think they cross the line to uh, away from just being comical or humorous to ridicule mm-hmm. and demeaning. And ridicule and beneath, I'm making fun of, I, and I don't care if I, if, if it's my enemy, I just don't like people making fun of demeaning other people and, and making fun of them. Uh, it's just that I think that's a very, very low humor. And I think it's, uh, and I'll, I'll even go to the point to say that it's just, it, it's a low element of humanity. People, I don't care if you, they're your enemy or not. You shouldn't you shouldn't uh, ridicule people and make fun of them like that. You should you can you can have humor and and say no you're not right and and attack them, but you don't demean them and lower them, especially the leader of our country. Yeah. Anyway, because because it affects the office as much as it affects anything and affects society, and so actually it it inra- it in, it inflates tribalism, and so yeah. You got the viewers, but you've supported tribalism in our country, which is going to tear down our country. And actually, uh, uh, if you if you enrage one side against a one tribe in the White House, then when the when the other tribe gets in the White House, then they're going to retaliate. And so you're just inflaming uh, that within our country. It's not humor. Mm-hmm. It's not humor. I think it's tearing down our society. I want, I, to, like it. I want to show you an Onion article. I want to get your take on it because it was one of the most – I read it on social media and I said, wow, they're going hard on this one. So did you hear about the shootings in Atlanta? Yes. A young man shot up three Asian massage parlors, killed six Asian women, eight people in total. And then did you hear what the sheriff of Cherokee County said? No. He said, this young man, he's a good, good man. He assured us that his 
killings were not racially motivated. This is not a hate crime. He's just a guy that had a bad day. So The Onion, they come out with this headline. Sympathetic police know what it's like to have a bad day and kill eight people. <laughs> That's making fun of the police, right? Yes, but it's in such a way that... <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah, it's true. So it's okay. Oh, so it's kind of like saying, oh, okay, so is that what you're saying? So it's it's not ridiculing or demeaning. It's kind of like, okay, I guess you know what that means, huh? You yeah, know, you... it's kind of like throwing the ball in their court. See, they're good. That I think I think it's it's high humor. I, th <laughs> I, I think it's high humor. It's funny. It's like... Uh, they attack everybody, uh -huh. uh, and I think everyone uh, in a free society, everyone needs to be attacked. And and you should talk, keep on talking, but you should listen more than you talk, and understand what other people are saying because it'll make you a better person. Mm -hmm. So nobody does everything right anyway. So we're at half an hour, and we're only through the first section. <laughs> yeah, but I, I don't know. I think it's fascinating, David. You brought up the onion. Uh-huh. Because uh, I'm sitting there thinking, wait a minute. We have the onion over here. We have foreign affairs over here. So how can those two <laughs> be talked about in the same podcast? And it's because both of them have two different approaches to say something, uh, to, to have an issue that they want to they speak on. Yeah. And I think one approach on the foreign affairs is appealing to the academic, uh, logical nature uh, of humans. The other is appealing to the social uh, humor of humans. I think both are valid methods of argument. Mm -hmm. So should we and get I back? I think oh. we should balance both of them. So I, I, David, I'm just saying in the future, I think maybe uh, we should, uh, the Sons of Sequoia here, or you, uh, should have a foreign affairs article and balance that off with, with the onion. Article. Yeah. So let's get back to it. American tribalism. Tribalism and the conflict that it can produce is often understood through facile comparisons between primitive villages and civilized cities or between the West and the rest. Contemporary U.S. politics, however, resists this simplistic dichotomy. Tools such as the CAF demonstrate that tribalism and its potential to ignite conflict is a general force that connects one identity to one's politics, regardless of location or political system. The more tribal a society is, the more closely membership in the tribe is policed, and the less one is permitted to cooperate with outsiders. Such forces did not appear with the advent of the modern nation-state, and they aren't limited by nationality. Modern Israeli Jews, Iraqi Shiites, and American Southern Baptists can exhibit the same tribal loyalties as ancient West African Ashantis, South American Incas, or Imperial Persians. The central benchmark is whether citizens of diverse backgrounds can use reason and argument to transcend foundational identities and work together toward a common good. Although there have been other moments in U.S. history when the country's governance failed to meet that ideal, most notably during the Civil War, the current era ranks high among them, especially by the standards and the U.S. government uses to evaluate the risk of conflict abroad. 
Today, the tribes are the country's two major political parties, bolstered by the demographic subgroups that compose their most loyal and predictable constituencies. Over the past two decades, these groups have grown further and further apart, each side accusing the other of stirring up historical grievances among its core supporters. According to two 2020 studies by the Pew Research Center, roughly eight out of 10 supporters of either Joe Biden, the Democratic nominee, or President Donald Trump, the Republican nominee, said that they disagreed with the other side over core American values. And roughly nine out of 10, again in both camps, said they worried that the victory by the other side would lead to lasting harm to the United States. Experiences from elsewhere provide valuable instructions for how to overcome American tribalism. The two... The two parties have also grown apart demographically. Although religion and race have long been two of the most salient predictors of a person's party affiliation, they now lock people into political viewpoints in dangerous ways. Even though Trump managed to improve his performance among minorities in 2020, people who identify as African American, Asian American, or Latino overwhelmingly vote Democratic. White Americans, particularly those who identify as evangelical Protestants, overwhelmingly vote Republican. Indeed, a majority of white Americans have voted for the Republican candidate in every presidential election in the last 50 years. Few other characteristics seem able to shake these dividing lines. Education, income, region, and gender all pale in comparison when it comes to predicting a given voter's party preference. Unsurprisingly, politicians' behavior reflects the growing divide among their constituents. According to one metric from the Brookings Institution, from 1992 to 2013, the ideological divergence on committee votes between Democratic and Republican House members grew by over 50%. In that environment, cooperation across the aisle is nearly out of the question. Such profound polarization has made it impossible, for example, to pass comprehensive immigration reform despite a clear need to address the issue. Likewise, a fundamental problem such as health care, which affects every single American, is still embroiled in partisan politics even as a global pandemic of biblical proportions ravages the country. This is not politics as usual. It is worse than the gridlock and culture wars that began in the 1990s, which the Clinton White House or politically savvy moderates could sometimes overcome. Rather, the current state of affairs represents a real departure from both past practice and civic ideals. The United States' once resilient institutions are now largely incapable of keeping tribal influences in check. At the federal level, serious problems increasingly defy solution, not for a lack of feasible proposals, but, but because politicians are determined to inflict defeat on their opponents in the name of tribal solidarity. Trump's impeachment over allegations of abuse of power and obstruction of Congress, for instance, was decided almost entirely along party lines, notwithstanding the facts of the case. The United States has suffered the most COVID-19 deaths of any country in the world, at least partly because of partisan differences. At the state and federal level, not a lack of information about how to defeat the virus. Such chronic capacity deficits, to use the CAF's language, can produce serious grievances that, under the right influence, circumstances, might spark conflict. These developments have not gone unnoticed abroad. The United States allies and partners regret that tribalism has diminished American diplomatic influence and soft power. Its enemies and rivals view that tribalism as an opportunity they can exploit. Russia, for example, took advantage of American society's racial and political fissures during the 2016 and 2020 presidential campaigns. When Russian cyber warriors flooded social media platforms, 
with disinformation aimed at black and Latino voters and targeted inflammatory racist posts towards white voters. As a senior FBI agent told Election Security Conference in early 2020, to put it simply, in this space, Russia wants to watch us tear ourselves apart. Foreign adversaries determined to undermine U.S. governance from within could easily replicate these techniques. Efforts to stoke tribal hatred and deepen the partisan divisions have succeeded before they could succeed again. All right, that's the middle portion. We can discuss this. And then I think the last portion is the proposed solutions. What did you think of that section? It was very, again, it was very interesting, very insightful, uh, and very uh, honest, but also damning. Like uh, the evidence, the evidence is overwhelming of what, what he's saying uh, that we've seen. Uh, even with the with the uh, the vote in the Senate uh, along party lines on the impeachment uh, about the insurrection, uh, even the the Republicans said he did it, he did it, but I'm not voting for it mm-hmm. because of tribalism. He did it, he did it, he did it, but I'm not voting for it. I'm not voting for voting against it. I'm not voting to impeach him. So it's okay uh, to have an insurrection against the government. I think you know. Do you, do you remember it's when, very interesting when Frost interviewed Nixon? What about it? Um, there was a famous line when so Frost sat down with Nixon. I forget the guy's name. Uh, his last name was Frost, and. He, Frost was supposed to be a lightweight. Nixon was supposed to sort of bully him around. It was his first interview after his re- resignation. But Frost stuck in there with him. And there's a classic line where Nixon's asked by Frost, you know, so you're saying that, you know, doing all this stuff, this subterfuge, this obstruction of justice, it's all legal? And then Nixon classically said, I'm saying that when the president does it, it's not illegal. And that's the classic line. So it's like, it is illegal, but when I did it, it wasn't illegal because I was the president. And people sort of reacted like, oh, he thinks he's above the law. Well, that's sort of the state of affairs today. That's the state of play. Um, also, just going back to the Russia stuff, I did read an article. I could pull it up. Should I try to pull it up? I don't know. Facebook, because I'm going to get the facts wrong. But they're concerned about anti-vaccination propaganda on their platform because Facebook's a breeding ground for all sorts of wacko ideas. Well, they did a deep dive using data analysis. And they found that over 70%, um, these numbers aren't right. I'm paraphrasing the numbers. They may not be right. But they're accurate. They're close, they're close to accurate. They're in the ballpark of reasonability. Over 70% of anti-vaccine content that gets shared on Facebook comes from 111 Facebook accounts. Isn't that wild? So we think of these troll farms in Russia where, oh, we're going to pay you 50 bucks a day. You go to this office building, you sit in a cubicle, you pretend to be a black person, and you find white voters in swing states, and you be racist towards them. That's that's sort of what they that's what they were describing in the article. 
And we sort of imagine it like Russia must be paying thousands and thousands of people. But really, all you need is a small number of people, and then that gets shared, you know? So the costs of perpetrating an information war are probably less than you might expect. And I think that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Because of network effects. Yep. So should we yeah, get a new world? Should we get world. into the solutions? Okay, that's fine. Uh, yeah, I'm sure we could talk more about what what he just said about. Uh, uh, actually, he was just saying uh, tribalism is real, and it, and we have it, and it's here, and we see it every day. I think what's important, though, is yes, he's right. But I think what's more important is that the common American doesn't see that. Uh-huh. They buy into it, they're part of it, and they don't even see that happening around them. And that's the dangerous part of it. So I see the structure of this essay as first section was, this is what tribalism is. These are the tools that international agencies use to identify it. And you could sort of point those tools at America and find some striking conclusions. But these tools also have solutions. The second section is, let's point those tools at America. And that's what he did just now. And the interesting thing is, in these articles, they say stuff that you saw. It's not like they're pointing to some obscure newspaper article. or I mean, he's using Brookings Institution and Pew Research Center uh, surveys to sort of bolster his argument. But when he talks about b- events on the ground, it's all stuff you remember, you know? It's not like, oh, this obscure thing happened and it changed the course of history. It's like, no, I was watching the news when this happened. And they didn't contextualize it this way. And maybe they should have. And, and it's not one isolated incident. It's it's hundreds and hundreds of incidences. It's it's our culture right now. It's the way the America, United States has gone. It's just who we are. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not who we are. It's it's where we're it it is coming from a culture, and that culture is becoming more and more tribalistic. So let's look at there, Oh, I want to say there are, there are good there are good people in this country though smart people and good people who who see that and they don't like it. Uh, but I think those good people a lot of times they're they're uh, quiet and they have to speak up. Says no. I also think there's people, what, people that are good people that play into tribalism, and it will benefit you. Like you have a neighbor. And you don't necessarily see eye to eye with them, but they'll help you out because by virtue of being your neighbor, they're part of your tribe. You know what I mean? Like Leela Green. Uh-huh. So We've mentioned that before in the podcast, Leela Green, our neighbor. And that's true. And do we want to be stronger together or do we want to be weaker apart? Uh, what, do we want to, what do we want to do as a society? Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, I guess it's sort of a different tribe group. Where it's like, man, I hate that guy. He's he's the worst. But he's my neighbor and he needs help, so i got to go help him. Because we're all in this together. I mean, I think there's something to that. There is. Uh, so shall we read conclusions? Yeah. America, heal thyself. That's the title of this section. If diagnosing the United States' currently tribal politics relies partly on tools originally developed to assess foreign countries, such as the CAF then the solution can be found in a similar place. 
By learning lessons from other societies that have emerged from tribal conflict, the United States might be able to overcome this divisive moment. Our central lesson is that leadership matters. On the whole, conflict-affected states have found it nearly impossible to overcome tribal divisions unless their opposing leaders commit to doing so. Conversely, strong and principled leaders can help point the way toward a more united future. Notwithstanding the generational brutality and oppression meted out by Afrikaners and other white South Africans against black and colored populations in South Africa, the anti-apartheid activist Nelson Mandela famously worked with President F.W. de Klerk, a member of the party responsible for apartheid, to dismantle the apartheid system. The Sinn Féin leader Jerry Adams and the unionist David Trimble bridged bitter and violent differences to negotiate the Good Friday Agreement and bring peace to Northern Ireland. To be sure, the conditions need to be ripe for leaders to move their supporters from hostility to comedy with long-established adversaries, but a willingness to renounce violence and work across tribal divides matters immensely. It can be the difference between perpetual conflict and durable peace. The United States is neither apartheid South Africa nor Northern Ireland during the Troubles. But even though political parties in the United States do not engage in open armed conflict, there is still an acute need for leaders who are prepared to cross tribal lines for the good of the country. To their credit, throughout 2020, every living U.S. president, except for one, and many other former elected officials publicly called for an end to tribal politics in the country. Following the election, former President George W. Bush released a statement urging Americans to move beyond their entrenched boundaries, saying the challenges that face our country will demand the best of President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris and the best of us all. We must come together for the sake of our families and neighbors and for our nation and its future. Former President Barack Obama made a similar plea when he called for Americans to do our part to lower the temperature and find some common ground from which to move forward. Such statements were less forthcoming from political leaders in office. Although the political calculus of those actively serving differs from that of those who have left public life, taking personal risks for the greater good is the very definition of bravery. Americans must demand that their elected officials show the courage necessary to bridge partisan divides. Another lesson drawn from the conflict-affected countries is the importance of civic engagement. Precisely because serving leaders are constrained by politics, civic groups dedicated to peace may be needed to make compromise possible. The community of St. Egidio, a group of Catholic laity based in Rome, for example, helped negotiate an end to the civil war in Mozambique in 1992. The Women of Liberia Mass Action for Peace movement, led by peace activist Lema Gobowi, played a similar role in ending the Second Liberian Civil War in 2003 by organizing Christian and Muslim women across confessional lines to demand a negotiated settlement to the conflict. For her efforts, Gobowi shared the 2011 Nobel Peace Prize. In the United States, all manner of groups could take up the challenge of building these sorts of bridges. Many already have. The civic campaign Millions of Conversations, founded by the Tennessee attorney and former White House fellow Samar Ali, seeks to foster dialogue across party lines and social divisions. In November 2020, it sponsored a depolarization summit, which sought to proactively address potential violence following the 2020 election. The Episcopal Church, likewise, has made racial re reconciliation a priority in its national ministry. 
Beyond the moral imperative underlying such work, the documented correlation between racial and political identities in the United States means that healing the country's racial wounds will have an important effect on governance. A full accounting of the country's racial history, coupled with focused attention on stubborn socioeconomic inequalities that affect communities of color, could help move the United States political culture beyond one of its most entrenched tribal divisions, partisan identity tied to race. Although this is work in which every citizen can engage, the president, Biden, he must take the lead. To start, he should convene a national summit on tribalism and American politics to examine the issue, explore its threat to U.S. governance and security, and propose recommendations to address it. The gathering could be chaired by two former U.S. presidents of opposite political parties and include academics, members of the business community, civic leaders, and other formerly elected politicians, all on a bipartisan basis. Together, they could produce tangible proposals from the local to the national level designed to fortify American governance against the scourge of tribalism. It will fall to Americans to do the work of bridging their country's tribal divisions. Beyond civic engagement, however, institutions also matter. Legal systems and constitutions can either encourage or discourage cooperations. This is why many peace agreements brokered in countries riven by tribal conflict have concluded with either a substantially revised constitutional framework, as in South Africa after apartheid, or a binding power-sharing deal, as in Burundi in 2000 after the country's civil war. Americans are proud of the durability of their country's constitution, which the Founding Fathers designed to stifle factionalism. Yet today, the framework provided by the U.S. Constitution is no longer up to the task. Of the various proposed constitutional reforms designed to modernize U.S. institutions, the most important for addressing the challenge of political tribalism is ending partisan gerrymandering. The practice, employed by both political parties, creates majority districts without regard to natural or sensible geographic boundaries. In doing so, it incentivizes legislators to play to a partisan base rather than seek compromise across the aisles, lest challenges further to their party's ideological extreme penalize them. Tribalism is thus reinforced by the system. Efforts to end political gerrymandering have been underway for years, but politicians need to accelerate the process. One option is for individual states to ban the practice in their jurisdictions. The other is for national leaders to amend the U.S. Constitution to end the practice nationwide. Although both approaches would face stiff political opposition, there is no structural reform that would do more to diminish the impact of tribalism on U.S. politics. All right. That was quite the uh, quite the section, wouldn't you say? Yeah. He says there's two ways. There's from what I got from that on one reading. I haven't read it before. Is yeah, we need to address this with people and policy. You do both of them. Mm-hmm. We need to have we have to have the leaders, and then we have to change the policy. Uh, both of them have to come together. Well, I think also civic engagement. So what I mean, that's, a, that's the people and that's, yeah. So there's the people, the lay people, are civic organizations, well, you, like extra governmental he's organizations. The leaders. He's saying the leaders. No, but like the, the lady that got the, the right. Nobel Peace Prize in Burundi, she wasn't a leader. I mean, she was a leader of a Catholic civic organization. She wasn't a political leader. So I think that... They're saying civil organizations that aren't tied to politics can help, but also leaders can help, political leaders. 
either currently serving or past political leaders. And then finally, there's a policy prescription too, and that's to end partisan gerrymandering. And I have read a lot about this, and the political science community is very much resolved that when you carve up districts into little pieces, and it's there's no way a Republican could lose, you know, there's no way a Democrat could lose. Um, the threat is not the opposing party. The threat is someone outflanking you, being more liberal or more conservative. Because whoever the conservative candidate is going to win, that's how you end up with your Marjorie Taylor Greens or your Lauren Boeberts. Um, that lady that ran against Lauren Boebert here in Colorado, Diane Mitch Bush, for all intents and purposes, she's a moderate conservative. And she was running as an independent because I think in Boebert's district, a Democrat will never win. So she's like, I'm a Republican. You know, I'm a Republican in the mold of George Bush, Dick Cheney. And uh, that wasn't good enough. You know what I mean? Because she got outflanked on the right. And partisan gerrymandering, I think the political science community has resolved, it pushes people further to the extremes. So since you don't have to worry about an attack in your district from the op opposing party, you just go as extreme as you can in your own party to win. Like there, I forget, I don't know the names, uh, but on, on the news, uh, on their advertising, mm -hmm. uh, someone asked this guy, you know, what, what do we need? And he goes, we need to move, uh, move from protest to policy. Yeah. And uh, the protesting is what's people enrage many people. Policy is creating structure. And I think that's what this guy was saying. Like the gerrymandering is this, is the policy and the structure. And then the, the people, uh, the leaders, uh, the leaders of our country, the leaders of movements, uh, and the people that follow these, it's people have to make the, have to make this happen. But also they have to have structure and create structure. Both of those two things have to happen. Uh, I thought it was a it was a insightful. Mm -hmm. It's very insightful and very uh, an intelligent approach to this thing. That um, and it's also most uh, uh, revealing for our politicians that don't do that. Mm -hmm. They they don't do that. And like he says, if if, if you try to have a uh, a, uh, a a constitutional amendment say you can't gerrymander. That's going to be fought all over the place oh, because, because yeah. again, why? Because that's where people are. They are uh, that it hurts their tribe, and our it hurts the Republican. We have two parties, yes, Republican and Democrat. But the reason you have two parties is that you have you have uh, each each of them will will uh, support it, the other person to make them. Uh, they have the liberal and the conservative together will have something that's going to be more beneficial for the country not uh we got to win over you and you got to win over us it, it's not uh, us it's not uh, a zero-sum game here uh, if it's a zero-sum game it, everyone's going to lose i also i mean i think the legacy of decades of political gerrymandering is you fracture from the center so you're moving let me pull myself up 
So you're here, you know, and then political gerrymandering, you fracture from the center. Well, your inertia's this way. And people say, well, we want to change the Constitution so that your inertia is this way. That's opposite to your, to your initial, to the, to the movement that you have going on. We want, mm-hmm. we want you to come together. Like, no, we're moving in a direction where we get further and further apart every year. You're telling us we want to change the Constitution to, to work together? Like, that's not what we're doing here. And that's true, right? I mean, there's a very true reality. There's a reality to that. It's kind of a good point. Uh, he, he proposes that as something that needs to be done. Uh, is that that may be idealistic, true, idealistically true. Is it realist? Is it, is it realistically true? Uh, will that happen? Uh, will we do that? Mm-hmm. It'll take people who will step up and say, "Yeah, we'll do it." But as you say, we're moving we're moving more and more toward tribalism, moving away from a United States. Yeah, uh, we're moving toward a divided state of the divided states. Well, and you it's know, internally, Mitch McConnell's been saying, "You better not get rid of that filibuster." And is it because it'll be scorched earth when we take control? And Mitch McConnell knows, he can read a demographic chart, that 75% of the people in 20 years are going to live in 15 states. And so 35 states will have a minority of the people, and those states are likely to be Republican. So it'll be 30 senators from states with 75% of the population and then 70 senators from states with 25% of the population. And then what do you think they're going to do at that point? They're going to do whatever the hell they want. Um, so he's warning them, don't do this. But the thing is, he's saying, if you do this now, we're, not go- we're going to be bad faith actors when we take power. And the question is, weren't you going to be bad faith actors when you took power anyway? <laughs> right? So why don't we do this now and get as much as we can, you know? Another thing the article said, which I find was, I found interesting. He talked about the Constitution, our founding fathers. Uh, I can't remember exactly the words. They set it up to, but, to stop factionalism. Yeah. And, uh, and maybe it's outdated or maybe that's being attacked or maybe our founding fathers didn't know that uh, the situation we're in today, uh, uh, I'm not really sure how to move forward with uh, uh, if if the Constitution uh, needs to not be silent with the issues that we see today, what should it be saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, let me just say it that way. You know, it's fascinating, though, it's partisanship and just sort of making an amendment to stop partisan gerrymandering, maybe. That's a difficult sell because everyone or the majority or a plurality of people from both parties that are in their seats may be there because of gerrymandering. Like if the if the districts were drawn with a reasonable geographic boundaries and they were 50-50 and they could go every way either election, it's going to encourage moderates. You're going to have a moderate Democrat and a moderate Republican, 
and they're going to fight for the middle of the normalized bell curve. But with a gerrymandered district that's drawn with all sorts of crazy lines so that it's 80% Democrat, it's a contest of who can be the most Democrat. So if you say, oh, we want to pass an amendment to the Constitution that encourages moderation, the people that are in power say, my whole career is based on uh, forging, you know, not moderation, to be as liberal or as conservative as possible. It's, it's a fascinating thing. It's not in the legislator's interest, but it is in the people's interest. That's why every single Republican voted against the COVID relief bill, even though it's in the people's interest, because it's not in their interest as legislators. It's fascinating. But then the gerrymandering, uh, my, from my background, I, I always remember uh, that when you see a problem and you want to try to solve that problem, you attack the problem. But the problem just may be the symptoms. There may be a cause which is separate from the symptoms. And so the symptoms may be distracting you from the real cause. And so I guess my question then would be, yeah, gerrymandering is something that you could you could uh, maybe eliminate or diminish or re maybe regulate or uh, somehow change of one, one or the other. But then again, will something else crop up in its place? Or will that not, will that just reframe the problem? And the problem will still be there. Mm -hmm. Is there something deeper or something someplace else uh, that can be addressed that if that's solved, the jury manning will solve itself? I don't know. I, I'm not proposing a solution. I'm proposing, I'm not proposing the answer. I'm proposing it would be a path to a solution. Maybe start thinking about, you know, what are some of the causes of these things happening uh, in our in our country and moving in that direction? But also, I mean, for I explained why legislators wouldn't want it. But for the people, we live in a tribalized society. So if you asked a hardcore Democrat, do you want to change the Constitution so that your liberal leaders become less liberal? But in exchange, conservative leaders become less conservative? They would say, no, I want my leaders to be more liberal. And you go to, you know, Jim Crow South and you ask someone, do you want your leaders to be less conservative and work more with the liberals? They'll say no. So you're not going to pass it by two thirds of the legislative vote. You're not going to ratify it by the votes of the people because that's not where we're at. It's fascinating when you say we have this problem and we need to do what we can to solve it. And it's going to be difficult to solve that problem because we have the problem and we're a democracy. That's who we are right now. How do we become not that through democracy? But how do you change it through democracy if that's who we are? It's fascinating. Yeah. You have to change who we are. <laughs> yeah. Have, and I think change, you have to change who we are. How do you do that? That might be why she led with civic groups and a gold star panel with former presidents and Repu uh, Republicans and Democrats, bipartisan, sort of. Working on that, you, sh you show leadership politically and through civil organizations, that's, that's a good place to start. Because you see people that you respect in the community, people that you respect in politics, say this is a problem. Maybe people will start thinking it's a problem. It's fascinating. Should I, we... think, I think 
I think that's it. I think you start with people. Mm -hmm. Start with changing who we are, changing the the mood of the country with people that you respect. And these people need to speak up. And also, not only nationally recognized people, but that needs to be trickled down into just local people as well. And uh, so everyone needs to be part of that. And uh, maybe the silent majority need to speak up or the silent minority need to speak up uh, to say, no, this this is uh, the right way to do it. This is what we should be doing. Mm-hmm. We should be working together. Uh, we may not like our friend, but he's our neighbor. And uh, we may not like our neighbor, but he's our neighbor. And we're going to help him if he needs help. So that that that's what America should be. That's how that's how America was built. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you and now that's being torn down. Uh, we're not going to survive if if we divide among ourselves. Yeah, if you say my neighbor's house is on fire, but I'm not going to go help because he had a Trump sign during the election. That's yeah. not very American. No. <laughs> so no, should we? Our... I think that she she wraps it up, or he wraps it up. It's a guy. He wraps it up. Yeah, I think it's a male. Uh, should he, I? He's sh- good. Should I read this? Yeah. Meeting the moment. In Bosnia, Burkina Faso, Cyprus, and many other countries beset by tribalism, it took external intervention to resolve ongoing conflicts. In some instances, that intervention took the form of mediation efforts by regional organizations such as the African Union or the Organization of American States. In others, it involved peacekeeping forces from third parties such as the UN or NATO. Unsurprisingly, the United States is unlikely to tolerate outside help when it comes to bridging its divisions. The country will never listen to a démarche from the European Union expressing concern about rising tribalism, nor will it invite peacekeepers to rescue black neighborhoods from aggressive policing. So, it will fall to Americans to do the work themselves of bridging their country's tribal divisions. The task will not be easy, not least because the citizens on whom the burden of addressing the crisis falls are themselves caught up in the tribalism that pervades society. That's what we were just talking about. Exactly. Solving tribalism in the United States is not unlike the biblical admonition, physician, heal thyself. Yet the state of the U.S. democracy, as well as the country's place in the world, depends in large measure on whether its citizens meet this challenge. The American foreign policy and national security experts, Mm -hmm. accustomed to dealing with events beyond the country's shores, would do well to participate in domestic forums aimed at healing schisms at home. Citizens who are normally loath to engage in anything political should find ways to spend time regularly and meaningfully interacting with people from distinct backgrounds and perspectives. The goal is not to eliminate differences, but to learn how to govern despite them. Although the United States is not at imminent risk of civil war, it is unable to resolve many of its pressing domestic problems or encourage other countries to do the same. Tribal divisions within the United States are susceptible to manipulation by enterprising politicians at home and malevolent adversaries abroad. Strengthening the country's capacity to govern itself across these boundaries is more than a moral good. It is a national security priority. The case for U.S. global leadership has never been simply that the country has an economy or a military that is stronger than any other. It is that the United States example and the ideals the United States embodies is worthy of emulation and respect. A country that reveres its freedom and insists on exceptionalism should also meet the standards of governance it sets for itself. The end. Wow, that that last sentence there, the case, that was uh, the case for U.S. global leadership has never been simply that the country has an economy or military that is stronger than any other. It is that the United States example and the ideals the United States embodies is worthy 
of emulation and respect. Those two sentences there, that I think that's the key of this whole article. I think that that's that was that was excellent right there. And I think that reveals when you go when you dig down, that reveals a lot. And so, yeah, we're a great country and they point to our military might. Mm-hmm. You know, they report to how much money we have in the bank. No, it's it's the ideals and example that people want to emulate that. Yeah, uh, we, we respect people and we support each other and we can come together when there's an argument. And I disagree with, with what you think and you disagree with what I think, but we can come together and together we can move in, in a, together in a in a united uh, front uh, against a uh in a, in a direction that's going to be uh, a better union. And that that right there, I think, is it's the example of idealism that that's going to carry us forward. Mm-hmm. It's not the details of our might or economy. I think I think that was a that was excellent closure. Yeah, that that's a smart guy. See, there's a lot of smart people in this world. Uh huh. And and they got to speak up, and he's speaking up. Yeah. You know, God, God bless America, and God bless people who speak up. But. <laughs> On some level, this guy, Ruben, uh, you know, he's a career diplomat. He understands foreign affairs from a very policy-centric level, and the tools that the United States has employed in Africa specifically. And the average American doesn't think on that level, no. right? I see that article as an appeal, an appeal to look, here's what we see, but an appeal for the American citizen to start start thinking about, don't be silent, you know, it's up to you guys to come together uh, and and move forward. I see that article as an appeal, appeal to to the American people. But I mean, fewer, fewer people will read that article then, you know, I guess it's sad, but it's true. (laughs) No, then Tucker Carlson, you know, white supremacist, heir to the Swanson frozen food fortune. He puts out a video, 300,000 people watched it in 15 hours. And 300,000 people have not read that article that we just read. No. That's why I kind of like doing the foreign affairs episodes there's a lot of good ideas that you do not hear in broadcast news media that are written in those pages. And mm-hmm. I guess it's kind of sad that people gravitate towards, I want this guy to make me angry. You know, I want him to come up here and tell me that everything the Democrats are doing are wrong and I should be pissed. Whereas Ruben with Foreign Affairs is saying, we need to lead by our example. And that starts by, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? But that's his way. That's his way. He, he's an intellectual. He's a very intelligent. From his position, he's speaking out. So he's doing it from his perspective. He can't be a Tucker Carlson, mm-hmm. but, but he I, can be who he is. Tribal divisions within the United States are susceptible to manipulation by enterprising politicians at home and malevolent adversaries abroad. I mean, not just enterprising politicians. I think there's media characters, and they're on both sides of the aisle, that say, I'm going to do a show, and every day I'm going to stoke outrage. 
And I'm going to drive people further and further away from, let's take a look at what's being said, and more, I hate them because they are who they are. And Ruben may appeal to the intellectual part of a person, but Tucker Carlson will appeal to the emotional part of a person. And which one's going to win in our country? Oh, it's the emotional part. 100%. So the problem is, that, but what I'm saying is, well, Ruben is, is intellectual. He's smart. And this is, he's, he, that's where he's coming from. So he's doing what he should be doing. That's not going to be a solution. That's just the beginning of a solution. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, and everyone has to start following in line. Everyone has to do their part from their perspective, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, more people like that need to start speaking out. And that's what he's appealing to. Like if you, So I, I totally support what he's doing. Uh, but it can't stop there. It has to keep going. Uh, he started the snowball. Let's just keep it going. See, I think one thing about this podcast that might limit our viewership, if there ever, if it ever grows, is that we don't really disagree violently about things. We don't really argue. We're not yelling at each other. Like sometimes if there is a disagreement, you know, I agree to disagree. I see it a different way. And we give each other the benefit of the doubt because there's respect there. I think that the extreme outrage, I'm outraged at what this person did. You're not willing to give them the benefit of the doubt because you don't respect them. And that sort of fuels the tribalism. It's fascinating, don't you think? That, I, I think it's. I think both things go together, is that you don't even know the person. Yeah. But you're not going to respect them because that'll fuel your fire. That'll fuel your fire. And so, it, it again, that's kind of what you're trying to do. Multiple spam calls during the podcast. It's annoying. I, I, put, I put mine on airplane, airplane mode. It's a good idea. It's, it's frustrating, isn't it? It is. I get a multiple calls a day. It's really frustrating. Did you hear? Okay, before we go, yeah. and this is totally off topic. Okay. But I want to pull Sounds this up. Sounds good to me. Uh, I'm going to pull this up because this is a story from yesterday. Largest fine in the FTC history. Oh, wait, hold on. Hold on. I can do this. I've been doing this long enough. I know what I'm doing. Here we go. FCC history, not FTC. Texas telemarketers who made over 1 billion robocalls. The Federal Communications Commission fined them $225 million yesterday. You know what I say? Wow. Good. Wow. <laughs> God bless the FCC. See, that's why we have that. The, the regulatory that, agencies. Regulatory agencies. Wow. And what are they going to do? They'll go bankrupt. The American way. What's the American way? Let's go, bankrupt. go bankrupt. <laughs> and then they'll open it up someplace else. Yeah. I mean, that LLC probably doesn't have $225 million of assets, but no. maybe the people behind it, they have it sheltered elsewhere. They can start another. And what does it take? It takes a server farm and computers doing IP calls. You know, it's I could start a malicious telemarketing firm with 25 grand. You know, you build a bunch of servers. You have super fast Internet and you call, 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 call. You play the tape off of the computer. You just write a script. Um, I don't know. 
I, and I would never do that because it's slimy. But I understand you could make you could make money doing that, you know. People are the reason why that company made a billion robocalls wasn't for their health. They made money off of it. I don't know if they made two hundred twenty-five million dollars off of it. Yeah. So I'd say good, right? Yeah. Yeah. It is. Yeah, that's good because I get I get multiple calls a day too. It's just I think everyone does. Wait, it says a pair of people. It's just two people. John oh, really? Spiller and Jacob Mears, who did business under the name Rising Eagle and JSquared.com. Oh, wow. And it was for spoofing. So it's like, you know how you'll get a call, it'll be from your area code? And you're much more likely to answer it? That's because they're doing IP spoofing, or the number spoofing. Wow. I say good, right? Yeah. Yeah. But what's better than than just attacking those two guys is having a system in place and and capability to identify these sources. Mm-hmm. And so uh and I and I'm surprised they're in the United States. I think that they probably could be uh from Russia, you know. It looks like it wasn't like a scam. It was, they were working for health insurance. Wait, no, falsely claiming. Never mind, it was a scam. Falsely claiming, yeah. (laughs) It it happened. Yeah. So. (laughs) I I like it. I'm I'm for punishing telemarketers. I'm anti-telemarketer. The thing is, if I want something, I will get it. Uh... By doing research online, like if I want health insurance, I'll go through the marketplace, Colorado Connect for Health Colorado, I'll select a plan and I'll buy it. If I want, I was looking at coffee grinders the other day because I just got a Costco membership (laughs) and they only sell whole bean coffee. But if I drink a lot of coffee every morning, you see me chugging down coffee. Uh, If I switch to the Costco whole bean, and I got a coffee grinder, it would probably reach payback in like six months for the coffee grinder. And then I'd be saving money from then on. Well, that's good. Yeah. There you go. That's good. But the sad thing in, is... In communication, there's something called the push system of communication and pull system of communication. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that. But a push system says, I'm pushing this information to you. I'm communicating by pushing, 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 and that's what you get on your phone. Mm-hmm. I'm pushing it, pushing it, pushing it. A pull system of communication is I have it here available, and you can come get it if you want it, and you can pull it to you. And I think there should be a FCC rule that uh, you cannot push information to uh, consumers. You can only have a pull system of of information for certain type of certain type of uh, communications. Now some things are push, like you want to push down there to like oh there's a storm coming, or you want to push like uh, the uh, uh, what do what do you call the uh, when a, when a child gets abducted or something? What's it th- called? I think like you know someone sending you a message or a robocall seems like a push, but everything's a push these days. If I 
Google coffee grinder. We'll just Google it. Um, this is search engine optimized. These first two results are, they paid Google. They paid Google to be the top two results. Yes, but you asked for it. But I didn't you ask for this. You know, if I go down to the non, I, I bet you you get to the second page before you get stuff that the algorithm put would so like organically oh. optimize. You know what I mean? I, I see what you mean. I see what you mean. So it's not a pure push pull. No, it, it, it it's it's a modified. Mm -hmm. But the point is what what I what I'm saying is a pure pull. I mean a pure push. In other words, I don't want people bombarding me with things that I don't want to hear. Uh -huh. I don't listen to them, but like how many you got about four or five calls just why we're here. Just, I have my I got two two during this episode, so and that's oh, I annoying. I heard more than, but I heard more than that. I well it also goes when I get emails too, because I have it on silent. But just okay. in case just in case there's an emergency or something, I like to leave it on silent so I can look at it. Because you never know, right? It's fascinating, yeah, though, because you have a thing, and I think I've inherited a little bit, where it's like you would say, someone's going to call, like in your classes back in the 80s, you'd say, someone's going to call, don't answer it, um, just let it ring through. And then you'd be lecturing, and someone would call, and the students, they couldn't handle a ringing phone. And they would go, and they'd pick it up. I did that. Yeah. In class. I did that in class. I actually, <laughs> well, since you brought it up, you want me to say what happened? Yeah. I was in class, 30 students in my classroom. And back then, well, it was in the 90s, there was a phone on the wall. Okay. And like if, if, like if you had audiovisual stuff or there's problem here, you go call and say, I need the audiovisual help here. They bring someone come out and, and replug things in or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so I was right in the middle of a lecture. We were talking and having such fun. Uh, then all of a sudden the phone started ringing. And I go, well, that's obviously not for me. Uh, you know, because I don't need that. And it kept ringing, kept ringing. And I say, do you guys feel inside yourself that you have to get up and answer that? And that's fascinating. It's like a Pavlov's dog response mm -hmm. and it kept ringing kept ringing i waited i waited i said i'm going to say that i'm not going to answer it because i know it's not for me i waited i waited and finally a student got up went over and said i can't stand it and they answered the phone mm -hmm. and they go uh -huh. oh okay okay i click on it says was it for you it says no yeah <laughs> and that's that's why people will answer these things, and I don't answer them anymore. Well, there's a, it was easy for me not to answer them because it's not for me. I know. I know that people are so much better than I am at. You get a text and you return it right away. You get an email, you return it right away. And I don't really do that, but uh, a lot of successful people do that. And it's like, you know, return the email, boom, 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 boom. And that's how they operate. And I think that... There's a virtue to that, but there's also a potential downside to that. A big downside. Psychologically. Well, I think a big downside productively. Mm -hmm. If you answered like I, I in, my, in my classes and my, I teach. And so if I answered 
all by emails, not even text, but emails. As soon as they came in, if I answered them, then what would happen is, is they would start growing and I would spend, oh, well, I spend two or three hours a day answering it. But if I answered them immediately, you wouldn't have any, day, you wouldn't have any uninterrupted time to work. I would never be able to get anything done. It'd be all talking to people. Mm-hmm. It'd be all talking. And, uh, oh, this and this and this and this. this. Is, are you going to do this? Did you do this? Or did, are you going to do this? Yeah, I'll get to it, but I'm answering emails. Yeah. And so they're asking me things that I would have done if I didn't answer the email. Uh-huh. Well, I think we're and, a little... Oh, go ahead. Okay, go ahead. No, go ahead. You, I was going to say, quit? I think well, we're a little off topic now. And, uh, oh, we are. You know, and I think everyone... We are off topic. <laughs> everyone that works in an office or professional environment, they have their own struggles with email. And I don't think that hearing someone else complain about struggles with email is like comforting to them. It's like, yeah, I know exactly. Like when at my work, it's even worse. Like you know what I mean. So it's. And I think it's not a comfort to hear that. Like if someone were listening in, does that make sense? That's true. You're absolutely right. But uh, what's the solution? Is it's kind of like what the foreign affairs is saying. Look, we have tribalism. We have a problem with emails. So when there's a problem, you can complain about the problem, which is easy to do, which I just did. Mm-hmm. But then you have to stop. You have to step back and say, what needs to be done to solve it? What needs to be done to solve it? And uh, uh, what's even more important is the tribalism What this article, what Eugene was talking about. Yeah, maybe, you know, <laughs> civic organizations, political leaders coming out in favor of it. Uh, changing the laws to sort of lower gerrymandering. That's like the equivalent of from 8 a.m. to 9 a.m., I'll answer my emails. And from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m., I'll answer my emails. And then from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., I won't answer any emails. So if I get it during the day, you'll get it back today. But if you send it after 6 p.m. at night, it's going to be tomorrow. So you have that. You know, that's sort of like, how do you deal with this problem? And if yep. you can't respond to every email in those two hours, well, you know, you'll pick it up the next day, right? That's true. But then some of the emails are, are important. Mm-hmm. Or some of them require a conversation. That's always frustrating to me where it's like if people do not like, especially younger people, they like texting and they like emailing and they hate talking on the phone. So you could solve problems so much faster with a conversation. What's the issue? This is the issue. Okay, what are our choices? This, 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 and this. Which one do you advise? This. But wouldn't this be better? Well, it would in the medium term, but this one would be better short term. Well, let's just take a medium term to approach to it and let's choose this option. Okay, so first steps. Let's do this, that, and that. Yes, and I'll do this, that, and that. Okay, let's convene um, a week from now when we've each done our first three steps. Sounds good. That is 20 emails. That's right. That's um, right. So, yeah, but enough about emails. <laughs> I think you're we right. Go to, on and on. <laughs> we could. Go on and on. <laughs> it's because it is an issue that, and everyone does face it, and it's relatable, but uh, I don't know. I think that uh, it's, it's good that you tied it back into factionalism. You can complain about something, but what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? You know, solve it. I, actually, I am doing things to solve it. And I think uh, what I'm doing to solve my email problem in my courses, I think it's going to work. And, and I've had other colleagues 
uh, the other professor is saying, here's what I've done. Here's what I've done. He says, oh, it's a great idea. And I'm trying it and it's starting to work. Mm -hmm. So again, that's that's how you solve problems. You talk to people. You keep on talking, right? Uh-huh. And listen and understand what they're saying. And uh, no matter, and you'll get good ideas from everybody. I don't care where they're from. Uh, and someone could have 99 horrible ideas. And that 100th idea might be a good idea. So you listen to everybody. Respect everyone's opinion. Respect everyone's uh, uh, contribution. Uh, you don't have to believe it. You don't have to accept it. But listen and understand what they're saying, because every once in a while, everyone's going to have something that's going to be valuable and important mm -hmm. and helpful. And you have to be aware of that. And so that, that's what we need in our society. That's what we need in the United States of America, coming together to listen to everyone and understanding everyone. Uh, and and I that, think, oh, go ahead. I think you, I think you mentioned that in a previous episode, uh, where actually maybe a phone conversation we had, uh, where uh, people, well, you mentioned uh, that when people are separated, uh, then they view other people uh, not in a, in a in a positive manner. But once you get to know people, it doesn't matter your differences. You can you can look through and over your differences. And so if someone race, uh, sexual orientation uh, from another country, uh, we if we don't know them, if we're not around them, uh, we're gonna actually view them in a, in a negative manner. I think uh, that, we, need, we need to listen. That's a good place to leave it. Should we close yeah. the episode off for today? Okay. Uh, do you want to say your tagline? Yeah, okay. Uh, keep on talking. But listen more than you talk and try to understand what the other person is saying for a better America and a better world. Bye.